This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For information on how you may obtain an accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree with online courses, please visit us at virtual.rts.edu. All right, well, last, um, last time, which I guess was two weeks ago, uh, we had been, um, we had just started into the Council of Peace. Uh, we had said that you know, this Council of Peace, the pre-temporal intra-Trinitarian agreement between the, well, between the persons of the Trinity, that it is rejected by some people. Uh, one of the common arguments that's used to say that this pre-temporal inter-Trinitarian arrangement was not a covenant is the idea that it's somewhat uh, mercenary or subordinationist uh, to propose any sort of a contract amongst the persons of the Trinity. The, you know, the idea is that since they're equal in power and glory, that to think of any sort of arrangement between them is a little bit odd. And so we were looking at these couple of strands of biblical teaching that show us that in fact this council of peace is um, a proper covenant that it can be and should be spoken of as a covenant. And we had uh, last time had just gotten through the first of those strands of teaching. Uh, That strand was that throughout the scriptures the relationship amongst the persons of the Trinity are presented in such a way that the Son renders obedience. Uh, He renders obedience to commands that are given to Him, and in return for that obedience, the Son receives a reward. Uh, That was the first general strand of of teaching that we had gone through relatively quickly. We looked at a couple different passages, uh, particularly Isaiah 53, 10-12 from the Old Testament, and then Philippians 2, 5-11, from the New Testament. We saw in both of those places and a couple others how uh, scriptures clearly present Christ as rendering obedience to commands and receiving a reward for his obedience. Um, so we'll move along to the, the second strand, unless y'all have any questions lingering from last time. No? All right. Well, the, uh, the second strand uh, that, that shows us the existence and the validity of this council of peace is that throughout the scriptures this obedience for reward relationship that we saw uh, is always presented as a covenant Uh, it's presented in covenantal terms in covenantal uh, imagery and some of the most compelling of those covenantal presentations come analogically Uh, the obedience for reward relationship between the son and the father is presented as parallel to and analogous to the obedience for reward relationship that existed between God and Adam. Uh, We've mentioned some of those passages before. Uh, You get it in probably the the most depth in Romans chapter 5, particularly verses 12 through 19. Uh, You also get it in shorter scope in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, particularly verses 21 and 22. And both of those passages, Christ is presented as the second Adam, 
uh, arguments are made uh, by Paul in both cases uh, that draw on the parallel between Adam and Christ. And very clearly, obviously, Adam's um, his obedience for a time and then ultimately his disobedience, uh, they occurred within a covenantal framework. And since Christ's obedience is said to be analogous to Adam's disobedience, then it stands to reason that Christ's obedience also occurred within the covenantal framework. That's the, the underlying logic of Paul's argument, uh, that Christ's obedience functioned in the same way that Adam's disobedience functioned. It functioned covenantally. Now, that, when you, you consider the, the weight of the arguments that Paul is placing on uh, that Christ-Adam parallel, it's convincing in, in its own right that, that that relationship between Christ and the Father is covenantal. But there, there's even uh, at least one place in the Scriptures where Christ explicitly speaks of His relationship to the Father as covenantal. And you get that in the 22nd chapter of Luke. In Luke chapter 22, in verses 28 through 30. Um, In Luke... 22 verses 28 through 30, I'll read those verses for us. There, uh, Christ is speaking to his disciples. He's nearing the end of his earthly ministry, and he says, But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now there in verse 28 of Luke 22, uh, there Jesus begins that little excerpt by setting His comments in the context of His own trials, His own sufferings. Uh, he says, you, you are those who have continued with Me in My trials. Um, now what we saw two weeks ago out of Isaiah 53 in particular, uh, this, we know that the Scriptures are clearly presenting Christ's trials as coming at the will of His Father. When Christ suffers, He suffers because it's the will of His Father. He's rendering obedience to His Father through His suffering. And so what Christ goes on to say is set in the context of this obedience to the Father uh, there in verse 28. And when you get into verse 29, Jesus speaks of, because of that obedience, the Father bestowing upon Him a kingdom. Uh, you know the, the implication there is that this bestowal of the kingdom comes because of Christ's obedience. Uh, he's submitted to the will of His Father, He's suffered His trials, and because of that, He has been had a, a kingdom bestowed upon Him. Now this is one of those instances in which uh, a knowledge of the Greek can be helpful in shedding a little bit of light on exactly what is being said. Uh, the, the verb that in the New King James Version that I'm using, uh, the verb that is rendered as bestowed in the New King James, uh, in the ESV, I believe it's assigned. Um, that, the Greek underlying that is diatithemi, 
sure I'm spelling this right. Diatithemi. And diatithemi is a, a, verbal, um, a verbal form of diatheke, which I'm sure y'all, that sounds familiar to you. Uh, it's a, a verbal form related to uh, the idea of covenant. Uh, Bauer, I assume that's the lexicon y'all still use, uh, Bauer defines it as referring to making a disposition of something, to make a, a disposition, to make a bestowal in accordance with a covenant. So when Christ says that he has been uh, assigned a kingdom, the Greek verb underlying that English translation is that the Father has covenantally conferred a kingdom upon Him. Uh, and He has re- uh, bestowed or assigned this kingdom because of the obedience that Christ has rendered. And so Christ is in somewhat, uh, in a passing sort of way, He doesn't dwell on it, but the, the language that He uses indicates that because of the obedience He has rendered, the Father has given to Him a kingdom as a covenant conferral. So Christ there is speaking of his relationship with the Father as a covenant, a covenant that's bringing about uh, the particular rewards of the kingdom. So when we say that the Scriptures present the relationship between the Son and the Father as one in which the Son renders obedience to the Father, he receives reward for that obedience, and all of that's a covenant, uh, we're not making some logical leap. That's the, the way that the Scriptures themselves speak of this relationship between uh, the Father and the Son. Uh, the, the rewarded obedience of the Son is occurring in a covenantal context. Um, that's the... Is it, so you're saying, is, is, it setting, is it speaking as if Christ is bestowing the kingdom on the disciples because they've remained with him? Is that what you're asking? Um, I, th- I think it is speaking in that sort of a, a context. I think it um, understood in the, the larger context of what Christ says elsewhere. He, he speaks of obviously having kept those who the Father has given to him, except the son of perdition who was intended to fall away. Um, the, 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 you know, the, the, the larger context is that by remaining obedient, they have, or by remaining with him through his trials, they have uh, manifested faith, they've demonstrated their election, therefore they're receiving the kingdom. Uh, so not, not in any sort of a legalistic sort of, you hang with me and you get the kingdom sort of sense. But, um, but, but certainly in, in the sense of their uh, faithfulness to God or their faithfulness to Christ, um, displaying their faith and then through that faith, their reception of the blessing to the kingdom. Now, obviously, that's um, if you move forward in time and realize that 
or taking into consideration the fact that once Christ was arrested, none of them abided with him in his trials, um, then you, you realize that he's not speaking in a purely obedience for reward relationship, more in a uh, essentially faith for reward, faith itself being a blessing of the covenant. Does that answer your question? Um, so that's the, the second general strand of biblical teaching. Uh, there's a obedience for reward relationship between the Father and the Son, and that relationship is presented as a covenant. Now, the, the third strand of biblical teaching is that this covenantal relationship between the Father and the Son is seen throughout the Scriptures as being eternal. It's not something that has just come to pass in time. Uh, you get that uh, whole number of places, uh, but we, we've sensed it already even two weeks ago when we looked at Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, 5-11, through 11, um, it was, we saw that it was in obedience to God's covenantal purpose that the Son came in the flesh. Uh, the, this covenantal arrangement lay in back even of the incarnation. It was driving the incarnation. Uh, it was the reason why Christ came in the flesh. So when you then realize and take into account that from the very beginning of the Scriptures, the incarnation is foretold, uh, you realize that this eternal or this covenantal purpose lying behind the incarnation also stretches back into eternity. It's driving the incarnation. The incarnation is promised from the dawn of the age. Uh, therefore, the covenantal purpose uh, lies uh, in uh, back into eternity. Uh, you also get the the same point is made in places like John six thirty eight, where Jesus says, uh, "For I have come down from heaven." not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And so there again, even the coming down from heaven, even the incarnation itself, is done in obedience to the covenantal purpose of God. Uh, that purpose lies behind what we see from the Scriptures to be the uh, eternally uh, decided upon incarnation. You also get it um, in places like Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Um, I'll read that for us quickly, as it'll come up again in a minute. Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 12, there Paul writes, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might, might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Um, in those couple of verses there in verse 9, uh, Paul refers to the fellowship of the mystery. Uh, the, the mystery there referring to uh, how God is bringing about redemption, how He's accomplishing the redemption of His people. 
And Paul says that this mystery was hidden in God from the beginning of the ages. So this redemptive purpose, uh, this redemptive purpose that we see uh, in the Council of Peace, uh, it stretches back to eternity past, you know, from before the beginning of the ages. Then in verses 10 and 11, Paul speaks of this hidden mystery now being made known. It's an eternal purpose, Paul says, that has been accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, this purpose uh, that's being accomplished, the redemption that Christ is bringing, is eternal. God has been pursuing it from all of eternity. And then in verse 12, you see that because of the accomplishment, the temporal accomplishment of this eternal purpose, God's people now know the blessings of the covenant. We have uh, confident access we have faith. Uh, you know, Paul, throughout that short little passage, Paul is speaking of an eternal purpose that's been hidden through the ages, that was accomplished in Christ, and that now is bringing the blessings of salvation, the blessings of the covenant, to believers. Uh, so, pretty clearly, this covenantal relationship that's uh, being discussed, this uh, covenant that's being fleshed out in Christ's uh, work, uh, that's bringing redemption to His people, uh, it is an eternal relationship. It's been hidden uh, from the uh, before the beginning of the ages. You know, the the same ideas referred to uh, other places. I won't necessarily dwell on on those. Uh, think pretty pretty clearly, and I don't think it's something y'all need to be convinced of. <laughs> uh, that the the elements of this intra-trinitarian covenant are stretching back before the foundation of the ages. It's not something that has uh, come about just. Uh, post-fall or just uh, in the incarnation. It's a purpose that God has had from all of eternity. Any questions about that so far? Um, all right, well, that, those are the first three strands of biblical teaching that establish a council of peace. And then finally, the, the fourth one, the fourth thing that we need to consider quickly uh, is that this eternal covenant always is held in organic relationship to the historical outworking of the relationship. There's this you know, obedience for reward, covenantal relationship amongst the persons of the Trinity. Uh, it's eternal in nature, and it always is held in organic relationship to its outworking in history. And we saw that even just a moment ago when we read out of Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, you can't separate... Christ's accomplishment of the Father's eternal purpose from the present enjoyment of its blessings by the elect. Um, you, uh, you cannot separate Christ's accomplishment of the, of the Father's eternal purpose from the present enjoyment of its blessings by the elect. Um, particularly there in Ephesians 3 and other places, you, it, it's held in such tight connection. Uh, and really, if you think back, it, it's a little bit more complicated since it's two weeks ago that we started into this overall discussion. But if you can kind of bring to mind what we talked about last week as well, then you, maybe you'll remember that you know, running throughout all these passages that we've considered in Isaiah 53 and Philippians 2 and then quickly there in Ephesians 3, um, throughout all those passages, the intra-Trinitarian covenant is never viewed in isolation. Um, it's always presented as... Uh, a, a present reality. It is not something that created some sort of static 
category, but it's something that's constantly issuing in the, uh, the blessing of the elect. Uh, in fact, it seems as if biblical discussions of and biblical hints of the Council of Peace always come up when the Scriptures are considering the blessings that are enjoyed by the elect. Uh, in fact, there in Isaiah 53, where we saw or looked two weeks ago, uh, the prophet speaking of the redemption of the people of God, he's talking about their being saved through the sacrifice of their substitute, and it's in that context that he talks about the pre-temporal intertrinitarian covenant. Uh, it, it always, uh, this pre-temporal reality is always discussed in the context of the present enjoyment of blessings by God's people. So if you, if you conceive of the covenant of grace as the historical salvation of the people of God, the application in time of redemption to the elect, then you have to say that the council of peace is never discussed in the scriptures apart from or in abstraction from this covenant of grace. They're always held in the, the tightest of connections. It seems to me that one of the one of the most clear and most powerful places that you find that is in Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17. Um, won't take the time to read all of that, but particularly, it seems to me, in verses 4 through 12 of John 17, uh, it's striking. Christ is in the midst of His earthly ministry. Uh, he clearly is referring back to this pre-temporal intertrinitarian covenant. He's speaking of the Father giving Him people, Him doing the Father's will. And He speaks of that eternal covenant being realized or coming to realization then. It's coming to realization in the things that he has done, the things that he is doing, the things he's about to do. Um, the council of peace is not some covenantal entity that's sealed off and completed in eternity past. It's not even sealed off and completed prior to Christ's earthly ministry. It's something that even still is coming to fruition in the historical accomplishment and application of redemption. Uh, it's that, that strand of uh, teaching within the Scriptures that lead us, or at least lead me, to conclude that the Council of Peace ought rightly to be considered as part of the covenant of grace rather than an entity distinct from it, as we mentioned uh, two weeks ago. Now, that's always the way that it's treated in the Scriptures. It's treated as part of an organic whole uh, between the pretemporal Council of Peace and the actual historical outworking of it uh, in time. Now, when we get into the hist you know, what normally is called the covenant of grace, you know, the historical outworking of this redemption, uh, when we get into that, we'll see how that relationship with the Council of Peace has some important implications there. But um, even at the present, we can note simply, but also rather importantly, uh, that uh, whenever the Council of Peace is discussed, it always is discussed in unity with the time-bound outworking of that covenant. So, uh, overall, this is a you know, quick review of those four points that establish this Council of Peace. Uh, first, we've seen that the relationship between the Son and the Father is presented as one in which the Son renders obedience, He receives reward for that obedience, We've seen that that relationship is presented in covenantal terms, covenantal imagery, 
Christ himself speaks of it as bringing about a covenantal reward. Uh, We've seen that it has existed since eternity and that it ever and always is revealed in organic unity with the covenant of grace. Uh, Now, from those strands of biblical teaching, I think it's safe to say that the Council of Peace is a biblically attested pre-temporal inter-Trinitarian pact wherein the salvation of the elect is secured. It's not some fabrication of covenant theologians. It's something that the scriptures themselves reveal. Now you might be, perhaps, maybe y'all are astute enough that you're not, but perhaps you're wondering why any of that's important. Why, um, what are some of the implications of this council of peace? Of course, there are a whole, whole lot of implications of it, but just a couple in particular, a couple of reasons why this council of peace is uh, important and some of the ways it impacts our theology. Um, first of all, it's, it's through this council of peace that we receive some of our clearest views into the Trinity. Uh, we see uh, the three persons of the Trinity in their individual economic roles together accomplishing redemption. Um, It's striking, it seems to me, as you go through the Scriptures, the clearest glimpses that we get of the Trinity seems always to be when the work of redemption is being described. Uh, Pivotal points in the progress of redemption, um, the... uh, central points at which redemption was accomplished. It's at those points that we get the clearest glimpses into the Godhead. And that gets back to the fact that it's in this pre-temporal covenant that redemption is being secured and it's then being worked out in history. Uh, It drives home to us the point that redemption is not something that a loving son has wrested from a mean, vindictive father. Uh, It's something that God in His triunity has accomplished uh, through, his, uh, through His love for His people. So that's the, the first implication of this pre-temporal council of peace, that uh, redemption is a work of the Trinity, it's something that the Trinity has ordained from eternity past. And when we see the accomplishment of this redemption, we see uh, relatively clearly uh, into the Trinity. Uh, the, the second implication of this council of peace, and I think this is one of the places where it can be particularly helpful, is that it it gives us a right framework for understanding passages in the scriptures that sometimes are wrongly taken to imply the subordination of the Son. Uh, there you, know, you could probably point to a number of passages that fall into that category. Uh, one of the most striking, simply because it's so blunt, is John 14, verse 28. In John 14, 28, Jesus there is referring to returning to His Father, and He says, My Father is greater than I. You know, it's a pretty blunt statement. It's not couched in a whole lot of other language. Uh, you have the Son saying that the Father is greater than He is. And that can seem and has oftentimes 
by heretics been taken in a subordinationist uh, direction. But when you take into account and have a, a grasp of this pretemporal council of peace, you have a category for understanding what Jesus means. Uh, the Father isn't greater ontologically. He's not more God than the Son. But rather the Father is, you know, quote-unquote, greater economically. Uh, the Son has chosen from all of eternity to submit Himself to the will of the Father. Uh, that's His work in the council of peace. Uh, he has willingly subjected himself to the command of the Father. He's come in obedience to the Father, done the Father's will, rendered active and passive obedience, won the redemption of his people. Um, and obviously, in a very true sense, uh, economically, the Father is greater than the Son. The Son has submitted himself to the will of the Father. Uh, so when we, but obviously, that doesn't at all carry over into the, on, to the level of being. Both of them are equally God. Uh, the Son simply has submitted to the will of the Father. So when you keep in mind these, uh, the, the relationship that we see sketched out in the Council of Peace, uh, you understand, as much as finite man can understand, how to hold together, on the one hand, the ontological equality of the persons of the Trinity, the numerical identity of essence on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the clearly disparate roles that the persons of the Trinity play in redemption. Uh, they don't play different roles because there's an ascending level of godness in the persons, but rather because within this pretemporal council of peace, they've covenanted to fulfill different roles. So that's the, the second implication of the council of peace. It helps us uh, understand some of these potentially confusing passages. Uh, the third implication is that uh, this council of peace uh, ends up being important in our understanding of justification, uh, particularly uh, our understanding of the active obedience of Christ. Uh, we've talked already about how, at least a little bit, about how Christ, when He came and rendered His active obedience, He was fulfilling the covenant of works, so to speak. He was, uh, in His passive obedience, He was suffering the curse of the covenant. In His active obedience, He was fulfilling the commands of the covenant and that certainly is true, but when you look even further back to the Council of Peace, you realize that Christ also, in addition to fulfilling the covenant of works, was also fulfilling His covenantal obligations within the Council of Peace. Uh, he was doing what He had covenanted from all eternity to do. It's not as if God created man really hopeful that He would succeed in the covenant of works, thinking that He would, and all of a sudden had to fall back on a plan B whereby Christ came and did what God had hoped man would do. Uh, Christ is doing what he had from all eternity covenanted to do in the Council of Peace. Uh, there's a, an eternal depth uh, to the active obedience of Christ. Uh, but then, also fourthly, the, um, the Council of Peace and taking account of the Council of Peace gives us a, a right view of the overarching unity of the covenant of grace. Uh, from eternity past, God has had this purpose to bring him, His people to Himself, and it's that eternal purpose that's being played out in the divine covenants. Uh, there is this cohesiveness or this unity to the covenants that is rooted in the fact that God, through all of these covenants, is bringing His eternal purpose to pass. God has had this purpose before He made the worlds. 
And He's bringing it to pass through Abraham, through Moses, through David, uh, throughout the ages. He's bringing this one purpose to pass. Now, that's important, it seems to me, in light of some of the current trends in covenant theology. Uh, A good bit of the covenant theology being written today, uh, not necessarily any of the authors that we're reading, uh, but with a good bit of covenant theology is being written today, we're starting to kind of lose the sense of the overarching unity of the covenant of grace. Uh, Men who call themselves covenant theologians um, will write a good bit about uh, individual covenants in the scriptures, but there's no sense of an overarching covenant of grace that ties one to the other. Uh, Things like this pre-temporal Council of Peace, or Covenant of Redemption as it's called sometimes, this idea is rejected out of hand, and then you end up with what seems to me to be a sort of covenantal dispensationalism. Uh, You have uh, God dealing with His people through covenant, and each successive covenant is somehow not unrelated to the previous covenant, but there's no organic unity. It's almost as if instead of hopping from dispensation to dispensation, God's hopping from covenant to covenant. Um, When we lose touch with this pre-temporal council, or excuse me, covenant or council of peace, uh, then we end up losing the uh, supra-historical unity of God's covenant of grace, and we can become so wrapped up in individual covenants, you know, so wrapped up in Sinai or so wrapped up in the Davidic covenant that we lose sight of the fact that that's one part of an overarching unity. Uh, But when we keep in mind this council of peace, uh, we um, are able to avoid that particular error. So there's just a a couple of uh, reasons why I think it's important to uh, insist on the reality and the validity of this pre-temporal intertrinitarian council of peace. Are there any questions on any of that before we move on from the Council of Peace? Given that we typically talk about the doctrine of works versus grace, how do you typically see this being preached? Or is it generally just sort of subsumed under the covenant of grace? It's implicit that the introduction of fusion, if you start talking about three covenants and one sort of works basis, really the overarching grace framework, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I think that... um, I think that it, uh, the the Council of Peace is something that, at least in my opinion, some guys might differ, but in, in my opinion, would not often be explicitly preached, per se. Uh, more, you know, fact. I think it, it's something that's important for uh, the pastor to understand in 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 you know, in grasping the eternal foundations of what's done in the progression of the covenants and real and something that roots him in the unity of them so that then when he preaches the individual covenants he brings that across in the covenants themselves um i think that's probably primarily where the council of peace will come across in preaching as well as in you know if you come across a passage that deals with uh, election or uh, the security of god's people 
and that sort of thing, it, it gets back to the Council of Peace to where it can be brought in um, as being eternal and as issuing in the time-bound enjoyment of God's blessings. But I, I think it's also, um, I guess I'm, I'm an advocate of preaching through books of the Scripture, and since it's not something that's, I mean, if you're, if you're preaching through Genesis, you come up on the covenant of works, and it's preached out of that portion of the Scriptures, whereas there's not one passage that deals with the Council of Peace per se. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't envision it being handled homiletically the same way that some of the other ones would. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. Yeah, now I think it's um maybe something that would be better handled in a Sunday school or somewhere there can be more uh interaction or I don't know. Maybe that gets yeah. I personally have never preached a sermon on the Council of Peace. Yes. Yeah. Anything else? All right. Well, now we'll move into the covenant of grace. Um, and that will take up most of the rest of the semester. <laughs> Um, I get y'all excited, I'm sure. Um, now, we just saw, or have been seeing, when we talked about the Council of Peace, uh, that there is considerable debate or disagreement about the relationship between the Council of Peace and the Covenant of Grace. And your position within that debate really determines how you define and understand the covenant of grace. Uh, in most cases, guys on either side of that particular debate really largely hold to the same things, hold to the same uh, components of God's covenantal work. They just group them differently. You know, do you put election, for instance, the decree of election, do you put it in a distinct covenant of redemption, or do you put it in a council of peace that's part of the covenant of grace? You know, things like that. Both both sides would hold to a decree of election, but do you? How do you group it? And of course, how you group it depends on how you define the covenants in which it's placed. Uh, if you place election in the covenant of grace, then you say that the covenant of grace includes election. If you don't put it there, you don't say that. Um, you know, the just the, the way that you, where you put the intertrinitarian covenant obviously has a large effect on how you determine or how you describe the covenant of grace. But it seems to me that biblically speaking, it's preferable, like I've said, to place the covenant of, or the council of peace within the covenant of grace. Uh, there's never a, a hard and fast division put between the two in the scriptures, and so it seems that we ought not put a hard and fast distinction between them in our theology. So given this inclusion of the 
counsel of peace within the covenant of grace, uh, we can describe the covenant of grace as the covenant in which God elects His people, secures their salvation, and applies that salvation to them. Um, it's the covenant that saves the people of God. Uh, it's, uh, the covenant of grace is the covenant in which God elects His people, secures their salvation, and applies that salvation to them. Now, as we, as we said when we were talking about the covenant of works and its validity or its role now, uh, we've said that ever since the fall, man has labored under a double burden. Uh, he's been subject to the curse of the covenant of works. He's been liable to death. And he's also been subject to the terms of the covenant of works. He still has a perfect personal obedience required of him. Uh, in order to be with God, in order to be in God's presence, man, since the fall, has needed both forgiveness of his sin and the possession of a positive, obediential righteousness. He's needed both to suffer the curse of the covenant of works and to uphold the terms of the covenant of works. And from all of eternity, God has made provision for that need. Uh, in the pretemporal council of peace that we've been talking about, uh, the three persons of the Godhead had entered into this uh, covenant wherein the Father gave the Son a people. Uh, from that people, the Son would remove their guilt. He would give them His righteousness, and then the Spirit would apply that righteousness to them. Um, that uh, that intertrinitarian covenant was made before the creation of time, and it is enacted in time. Uh, it's manifested and it's moved forward uh, through the specific covenants that God makes with individual men or with individual groups of men, you know, with Abraham or with uh, Israel through Moses, that sort of thing. Um, through all of these historical covenantal administrations, God is moving forward His eternal covenant of grace. And he's doing it until, at the end of the age, uh, he has gathered all of his people to himself. You know, that is the covenant of grace. God uh, electing his people, um, securing their salvation, and then applying that salvation to them. Um, but before we get into the, the specific administrations of the covenant of grace, uh, you know, Abraham, etc., we need to spend some time considering the covenant of grace as a whole, kind of its, its nature, some of its characteristics. Uh, we need to think about a couple of things pertaining to the covenant of grace that always come up when you discuss the covenant of grace, uh, things that are helpful uh, as you go through and consider it in detail. Now, you could spend really the rest of the semester talking about the general characteristics of the covenant of grace. You find some books on covenant theology that, you know, they're 300 pages long and maybe five pages deal with the actual covenants with Abraham and Moses, etc. Uh, all of them, just, they spend reams of paper discussing just the characteristics of the covenant. We're not going to go into that much detail. But there are three issues uh, that I think are important to get a grasp on a little bit before we dive into the specific administrations of the covenant of grace. I would think we're, we're, we're going to look at First, the parties to the covenant of grace, essentially who's, who's entering into covenant, 
in the covenant of grace. Uh, we're going to look at whether the covenant of grace is conditional or unconditional. And then we're going to look for just a couple of minutes at the unity of the covenant of grace. So those are the three overarching issues to which we'll limit ourselves in getting an introduction to the covenant of grace. But before... We'll forge ahead for a couple minutes. Um, we might be in the middle of something when the hour's up, but we'll keep moving. Um, first of all, we probably need to make a, a couple more comments about the overall structure of the covenant of grace. Um, I know that can, can be a confusing uh, topic. Uh, as we've been saying, uh, the covenant of grace uh, should be understood as containing both the pretemporal intra-Trinitarian council of peace and the actual historical outworking of that council in history. Um, I don't know if drawings are particularly helpful to you, but um, if you were to try to draw it schematically, if that helps you get a handle on it, um, you could kind of do it this way. If this whole block here is the covenant of grace. It consists of both the council of peace and the historical outworking of that council of peace. Uh, they're both, you know, they're distinguished from each other, but they're both part of the covenant of grace. Um, now, as we've seen, uh, you know, this, you know, well, in, 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 in this historical outworking, what I mean by historical outworking is, you know, the, the actual covenantal administrations with Abraham, well, I guess first with Noah, moving. You have Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Christ. You know, there's the, the historical outworking of this Council of Peace moves through these individual covenants, but it's all part of the same uh, covenant of grace. And through that covenant, in both of its parts, God's people are first chosen, and then their redemption is applied to them um, in the outworking of the covenant. Now, in the Council of Peace, as we've said already, and I, I shudder to draw representations of the Trinity, but it's asking for heresy. But um, if you go Father, Son, Holy Spirit, if you have issues with my representation, I'll apologize. You have, you, know, you have this pact between the persons of the Trinity in which the Father gives a people to the Son, the Son redeems the people, the Spirit applies the redemption. Uh, you have um, that particular arrangement within the Council of Peace and as a result of the Son's active and passive obedience within the Council of Peace, 
we'll represent that by a cross over here. Um, because of the what the Son has covenanted to do in the Council of Peace, he renders his active and passive obedience in history, and that, by the work of the Spirit, that is applied, that work that the Son does is applied to the hearts. Look, I'm drawing a valentine up here or something. Um, the hearts of God's people. So it's all part of one covenant, or it's all one covenant with the Son winning redemption and then the Spirit applying it uh, to the hearts of God's people. And uh, through all of that, you know, again, it, God is choosing his people and actually uh, redeeming them from their sin. Now, if you wanted to add mankind to this schematic drawing, is this drawing proven at all helpful or just... I've tried to, to explain it to people before, and sometimes it helps, sometimes it's more confusing than helpful. So if it's more confusing than helpful, just ignore it, I suppose. But uh, if, if you were to add mankind to this schematic drawing prior to the covenant of grace, which is a strange thing to speak of since it's pre-temporal, but um, kind of before you take into consideration the covenant of grace, you have mankind as a bunch of sinners kind of a, you know, a mass of sinful man over here. And through the Council of Peace, the Father chooses out a group of sinners, brings them in as the elect, and they're the ones to whose hearts the work of Christ is applied. And then... Because of what the covenant of grace has accomplished, over here you have redeemed sinners. Out of the mass of sinful humanity, the Father chooses His elect. He gives them to the Son. The Spirit applies the work of the Son to the hearts of the elect. And they, because of the covenant of grace are redeemed uh, or become redeemed sinners. Um, you know, by the time you get to this sort of wavy line, you have the elect, and by the time you get over here, you have the redeemed elect. So they, you know, the work of Christ has been applied to them. Um, that's kind of the, the general structure of the covenant of grace. Uh, like I said, I don't know whether seeing it drawn out is helpful or not, but there it is. Um, it's a, an overarching sort of expansive covenant that includes both the Council of Peace and the actual historical outworking of that Council of Peace. And it works to change fallen or wicked sinners into redeemed sinners. Uh, that's the, uh, the general structure. Now, I think probably before we keep it, we probably should stop so I'm not absolutely in the middle of something that makes it confusing to stop for chapel. At this point, we have, but we do have a minute or two if there are any questions about anything so far. Just a little fuzzy. Is there a council of peace? 
How does uh, is it? Yeah. Yeah. If you if you were to make a uh, a separate drawing for the covenant of works, it would be its own covenant down here. Not. It 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 doesn't factor into. I mean, it's not part of um, the covenant of grace. Uh, it's a, a distinct entity. Now, also, it's not. It's not as if God has two different purposes. It's not distinct in that way, but it's it's a different it's a different covenant. Um, in a lot of ways, um, the covenant of works ends up being somewhat of a reflection of the Council of Peace. Uh, in in Hebrews, we read about how the the earthly administration of, uh, particularly in, in the tabernacle, with the, um, some of the, th- the all the furniture and the procedures of the tabernacle, how that's a reflection of heavenly realities, and you get a, a, the same sort of reflection quality with the Council of Peace and the Covenant of Works. In the Council of Peace, the Son is rendering perfect personal obedience in order to obtain a reward that He gives to the elect. And that is reflected in what's required of Adam in the covenant of works, um, a perfect personal obedience required to obtain reward. Um, so there's, there's a, a relationship of similarity, so to speak, but it's, it, it doesn't factor into the overarching covenant. Now you get, um, I think the first couple of weeks we mentioned uh, monocovenantalism, does that sound familiar? Uh, within a monocovenantial structure the covenant of works would be within the covenant of grace and they would say that you know, it's all one covenant from beginning to the end of time am I, not, am I missing your question? Oh, no, no, I, just, I, just, I wonder how you avoid glossing over the covenant of works and exploring covenant theology in general that, you know, since the covenant of grace is, is pre-temporal and clearly describes the temple from the beginning yet you do have this separate covenant of works Yeah. Um, maybe you don't, if you don't mind, I don't want to hold up. Tab, we, we can talk about it when we get back in. Start next hour. Yeah, I do, because you, you're right. It, it is possible to so focus on the pretemporal aspect of it that you covenant works end up being a second thought that you may as well forget about. <laughs> yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll talk about it starting next hour. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.